You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Uh, John MacArthur's church has had a big conference um, called Strange Fire, really addressing uh, this topic and addressing it from a stance of these things do not happen. Uh, a lot of controversy um, from people who believe that they do. Um, in fact, Mark Driscoll showed up at the conference um, as a form of protest, even though he says it wasn't. He showed up to pass out uh, books of his, um, and they were confiscated. And, um, yeah, he says they were confiscated. The conference says, hey, we just took them because we have to approve anything that gets passed out. He's welcome to have them back, which is fair. I wouldn't want somebody just showing up outside my church passing out books and uh, me not have a say-so in it. So it definitely generated some controversy from those who uh, we would definitely support. I mean, John Piper's a guy that we would support, but he's definitely, he's more than open but cautious on some of this stuff. I mean, um, I was listening to some videos from him this week where he regularly prays for the gift of tongues. I mean, he believes in the gift of tongues, believe it ha- believes it happens in his church, believes that he's got friends who speak in, in tongues the way that the Bible describes, and he desires to have that gift. Um, but you know, this conference and the controversy surrounding it, John MacArthur speaking very direct to the issue and saying that this is false, that this is wrong, and that this should not be happening. Um, and we talked about that a little bit last week with the cessationist view, that um, there's some that are very strong in that area, uh, John MacArthur being one that leaves really no open door for this to be happening at all within the church. Um, I also had the chance this week to talk with the uh, youth pastor at the school that I teach at. Um, he's the youth pastor at the church where the school's at that I teach at. Um, we had a big field trip down at Rock Ranch and um, worked out where I had the privilege of riding down with him. And I mean, I wasn't intending on talking about spiritual gifts with him because I know that would be a little controversial. And I try to fly under the radar at Trinity. Um, with with my theology so that nobody gets concerned about it. Um, he said something, though. I forget what it was he said, but then I just I just went with it, and I said, okay, I'm just going to start asking this guy questions. And so we got into a lot of dialogue about what they do at their church, how they handle specifically tongue speaking at his church. And there were some things that I felt like were consistent with Scripture in the way that they were trying to do it, but then I also felt like there was some serious flaws in some of the ways that they were handling it at their church. Um he, he talked to me about his own experiences in speaking in tongues, um, and I guess the one thing that really stood out to me about what he had to say is that he he doesn't feel like something comes over him to where he starts just doing it. It's, it's an intentional thing that he does. He just starts speaking uh, what we would call gibberish. Um, he, he makes a conscious decision to start speaking in tongues is what he seemed to relate to me, that there's times when he'll be praying over a student, maybe doesn't know directly how to pray for that student, and he'll, and he'll just start speaking this way. Or in private, he'll just begin to speak this way. And, and I tried to get him to clarify, so I understood exactly. I was saying, so this isn't something that you feel like is not under your control. You feel like you're controlling it and you're doing it. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Like, I feel like it's, it's a conscious decision that takes place, which again, for me, seems inconsistent with what I see in the clear passages in the, in the New Testament about this gift and, and what it looks like. Um, I hope to get the chance to talk to him a little bit more in depth about um, things at his church and how they're handling it. 
But last week, uh, we, we introduced this idea. We've been talking about spiritual gifts for the last couple of weeks now. We looked at Pentecost and what happened. We said that it's important to remember that we're talking about a transition in covenants. And we've talked about covenant. We lead into this teaching based off of our understanding of covenant now. So you have a transition from old covenant to new covenant. It's significant that the new covenant comes into play the way that we understand it at Pentecost on the very day that they would have been celebrating the initiation of the old Mosaic covenant. And so it's clear that God wants us to see a transition happening. Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. We said the big conclusion that we should come to is that the major change is now that they're outward focused. They're globally focused now. They're they're bold in their proclamation of the gospel. Because you can even go back into... When Jesus is still on the earth and the disciples start doing miracles before the Holy Spirit comes upon them, right? I mean, Jesus sends out 70 of them to different towns and they're doing miracles and they come back and report on it. So even the miracles wasn't a direct result of Pentecost. Like that stuff was even even happening through them before the Holy Spirit came upon them. So the major change, the major difference that's not happening in their life before and is happening in their life after is their bold, relentless proclamation of the gospel. And not just locally, but it's got a global focus, too. I mean, they are, they are traveling, triumphantly proclaiming that Christ has come, that salvation has been won, and that the hope of the Christian is now the return of Christ. That becomes their, their, their major, the major change that happens in their life at Pentecost. Um, and so then last week we began to look at some of these controversial gifts that um, kind of spring out from our understanding of Pentecost. We said, ultimately, that they're not meant to provide an amazing personal experience. What we see in the New Testament is that spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the church. They're meant to build up the church. That's their goal. That's the focus that we're to have in the gifts that are given to us. It's not for a personal experience. We said that uh, many of our errors where spiritual gifts are concerned arise when we want the extraordinary and the exceptional, but to be made the frequent and the habitual. We come into error when we want the extraordinary, the exceptional, to all of a sudden become the frequent and the habitual, to become the norm. I introduced to you the three views on this. The continuationist view says that this continues to happen just like we see it in the book of Acts. Tongues, healings, uh, prophecy, all these things continue just like they, that they were happening in the book of Acts. The stationists say, no, 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 this is stopped, this is done with, it ended with the apostles, um, it does not continue today. The open but cautious view says, ah, we're not really sure. Um, it's possible that this stuff continues, and most people, and I would fall into this camp right now, we're definitely open to this stuff happening in areas where the gospel is first coming. Like, the gospel has not previously been there, and now the gospel's come through missionaries, I'm totally okay with saying that these type of things happen in those settings. I don't, I don't have a problem with stories that I hear back about these type of things happening. I'm very iffy about these type of things happening in, in our country today. We've said that Scripture reveals that the purpose of a lot of this stuff was to validate the message and to validate the messenger. And we don't have that need for validation here in America. I don't see the need for that. Um, not with the history of our country. Uh, the principles that we were founded upon, the, the knowledge that exists, the, the readily availability of Scripture in this country, I don't see the need for validation 
of the message that we try to share here. Not to say that it doesn't happen, um, but this view would say the New Testament doesn't say that these gifts have ceased, but it doesn't say they won't cease either. Um, and so there's, there's the possibility that they have ceased, and Scripture just doesn't specifically tell us that. Um, but it's also the possibility that they continue. Um, and I think you could, you could make the argument that we at least have to admit that there's some change in the fact that we don't believe in apostles anymore, right? I mean, we don't have the office of apostle in our churches. Now, some do, and they definitely stray from conservative theology. Um, the, the Mormon church has apostles that are in charge of the entire Mormon church. We don't believe in that office anymore. What we see in the New Testament is that in order to have been an apostle, you had to have been with Jesus. You had to see the resurrected Jesus. You had to be called specifically by Jesus. We don't believe individuals have that calling upon them anymore. And we certainly don't believe that anybody's seen the resurrected Jesus that's alive today. So there's definitely an office. And a lot of times we see in the New Testament an office and a gifting are, are almost the same thing that God gives us teachers. There's also the gift of teaching. So there's the office of apostle that no longer continues, even though Scripture doesn't come flat out and say, hey, when all the apostles are dead, there's no more apostles. We just gather that from what an apostle is. And a lot of the, the, the gifts that we're talking about here were coming from the apostles. So it's very possible that a lot of this stuff has ended in the way that we understand it in the New Testament after Pentecost. Um, we started looking at the, the gift of prophecy last week. And I want to just to, to remind you as we continue to look at these gifts, the miraculous gifts, whether they continue or don't, they should never supersede God's word. The message that comes from tongue speaking, prophecies, those messages should never supersede God's word in our life. Meaning we should not ever come to church anticipating and hoping that somebody will speak in tongues this morning. We should never come in anticipation that somebody would prophesy this morning and have that expectation supersede our expectation from hearing from God through his written word. See, we, we, if we're not careful, we fall into this category of wanting the extraordinary to happen and thinking that that in some way is more special than the norm of hearing from God through his word. All through the New Testament, when, when, this, when this topic is coming up, the word is always placed as the priority in the life of the believer. Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Chapter four, verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is instruction given to Timothy. It does not say speak in tongues. It does not say be ready to prophesy. It says be ready to teach the word. The word is sufficient for everything needed for the Christian life. So we do not need to feel 
inadequate as a church, even if these gifts are supposed to continue, that they aren't seeming to continue here at Sovereign Hope. We should not feel deficient in any way because we have the stuff that matters, and that's the written word of God. That supersedes any of these messages that would come through these other avenues if they, in fact, do continue. I think it's important for us to realize that. We looked at prophecy last week. Uh, We said it's a little bit different in the Old Covenant. It's more thus says the Lord coming from prophets, whereas in the New Testament we see the, the implication that we're to test everything, hold on to what is good. We speculated a little bit uh, about what the gift of prophecy looks like today. Those individuals that I value their their understanding of Scripture that believe they continue, guys like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, um, those guys, this is how they describe the gift of prophecy. And we looked at some of this last week. It's things that the Spirit brings to mind that otherwise you wouldn't have thought of. This may ha- maybe happens in conversation with somebody. Holy Spirit prompts you to begin talking uh, about things or talking in a way that you're not prepared to do. Um, and, and it's motivated by the Spirit potentially. They would call that the, the, the gift of prophecy. Somebody who can begin to, to speak in such a way that, that maybe they wouldn't have thought otherwise to do. Um, the ability to know things about people without a reason for knowing them. We, we, we referenced the John Piper story where he, he says, maybe you work in the 34th floor of this building and you should start a Bible study. The lady comes up and says, that's exactly true. I work in the 34th floor. I've been praying about starting a Bible study. That we probably don't need to call that coincidence. That It's okay to say that that was uh, drawn out by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Um, we talked about, you know, at times you hear stories about people waking up in the middle of the night and they're prompted to pray for somebody, find out later so-and-so was going through something at that exact time. We don't have to call those things coincidences. We can say that those are generated, motivated by the Holy Spirit. Guys like Piper and Grudem would say that that is the gift of prophecy uh, that's being given to those individuals. It should always be tested. Um, it's not the same thing as teaching. Teaching is more authoritative. God's word is certainly more authoritative than anything that would come from this gift. We should be cautious with prophecies from others um, that tell us what to do. And I gave you some, like, the question that I still ask is, uh, was this prophecy going on at that time because they lacked the New Testament in written form? Do we see that gift being given in the context of local churches because they did not have the New Testament to read from? Was God allowing people to speak prophetically about the new covenant and new covenant living because there was not written scripture to study from? Now, the Old Testament was available. The Old Testament was sufficient for their growth as well. But obviously, they need more knowledge and more information about who Christ is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the New Testament. So while the Old Testament was there and in place for them, it's very possible that this gift was being given because there was a lack of knowledge about the new covenant. And until these letters could be written, until they could be collected and put into the canon, there was a need for teaching to happen to these new believers. You know, Paul taught a lot. Paul taught a lot to those Thessalonians that we don't have written down, correct? He was being given knowledge that obviously wasn't authoritative in the way that the the letters that we have are. So my question is, was this gift in place based on the need for it at the time? And do we see a decrease in the gift today because there's not that kind of need? Now, I'm willing to admit things like what Piper says in his sermon 
just happening to get an illustration right happens. And I'm okay with calling that that the Holy Spirit did that. I don't know that we have to call it the gift of prophecy, though. It may be that the gift of prophecy was something different than what Grudem and these guys are describing. So we can say that those things happen without really having to call it the gift of prophecy. We can say that the Holy Spirit moves us and guides us and directs us and not have to label it that. Um, I tend to lean more towards thinking that the gift of prophecy was a need at that time based on their lack of knowledge of the new covenant. Um, but I'm open to, uh, you know, the idea that we could call it this if, if we need to. Um, scripture's not totally clear on whether this is ended or not. Uh, secondly, miracles. So we're going to look at miracles, healing, and then kind of throwing demon casting into this. It's not given as a spiritual gift. But it's definitely something that we see individuals having the ability to do. So we're going to talk about that as well in this grouping. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28. First Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. We see miracles being mentioned here as a gift in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Acts 19, 11 and 12, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Um, so we've got miraculous healing taking place in the life of Paul. Um, and then Acts 19.17. Uh, verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear uh, fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Um, also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They, can, they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We see uh, what continues in the book of Acts. We see miracles we see healing and we see the casting out of demons these things continue to happen even after uh jesus leaves um we were i think we've shared this story before we were here in sonoy doing one of the men's theology nights and um it was at the the pizza place, and a lot of the guys had already left, and there was a few. If you were there, raise your hand. You remember the guy that came up and proclaimed the healing thing? Yeah, so we're sitting there talking, and this family picks up on the fact that we're talking about Jesus, and they came over to start to interject uh, their thoughts on things and began to share with us this magnificent healing story in their family's life where their son, who uh, previously was autistic, very autistic, uh, they took him to... Um, some of the churches connected with this healing movement in Thomaston, and they prayed over him, and, and they swear that he, he, his autism was healed uh, immediately. And, and 
they got a, a completely different son out of it. And, and he began to proclaim. He was like, yeah, like this definitely happened. Like I was not this way before. This happened. I was healed. And, you know, we're kind of all sitting there like, I don't know what to do with this. And I still don't know what to do with that. Um, I mean, I can't tell these guys that, hey, your kid wasn't autistic. You know, like you're lying to me. Um, it, it's hard to evaluate experiences when you weren't a part of those experiences. Um, but maybe you've heard stories like that, these miraculous type healings that make you wonder and question valid versus not valid. Did that really happen? Did it not really happen? Um, Rob from Snowbird called me a couple of summers ago and, and was telling me that he really believes that a girl showed up at camp that was possessed by a demon, that she was very vocal against the gospel. Um, she was disruptive when the gospel was being shared in services. Um, there was a lot surrounding that situation. They began to pray over her, began to speak the gospel to her, and, and he believes that a demon was cast out in that situation. Um, these are credible guys in my life that, that are very cautious about proclaiming that type of stuff. So we, we hear stories about these things, and it, and it draws questions in our minds. Does this stuff continue? Should it be happening more frequently than we see it? Um, I think it's important, and we're going to look through some, some implications for this, it's important to, to note that there were really three major times in redemptive history where miracles were happening frequently. Three major times, and uh, they were talking about this at the Strange Fire Conference. Uh, the first really was when Moses was called to be the leader of Israel. Moses is called to be the leader of Israel. He has questions in his mind, are people going to listen to me? You know, if I go back and tell the children of Israel that, that I'm supposed to lead them out of Egypt, are they going to listen to me? Exodus 4.1, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God is giving him the ability to perform these type of miracles, these type of signs, to validate him as a messenger of God. These aren't meant to entertain. These aren't really meant for the edification of anybody. These are simply meant to validate. I come from God. Look at what abilities he's given me to do. I think that's important to note. The second major time when miracles are happening, we see it with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. These are spokesmen for God in the midst of a lot of religious turmoil, a lot of bad kings leading Israel, and these two prophets are given miraculous abilities at that time. Again, to validate themselves as prophets of God. And then obviously the one we're most familiar with, Christ and the apostles. Christ and the apostles were able to perform 
these miraculous type signs and healings. In John chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Chapter 7, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Messiah, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man had done? These people were debating, is Jesus the Messiah? And somebody comments and says, if he's not the Messiah, are we expecting the Messiah to show up and do more signs than this man has already done? These signs were being done to validate Christ and who he was. He even gives these signs as evidence to John the Baptist's disciples. You remember John the Baptist is in prison, sends his disciples, and they're saying, hey, John wants to know if you're the one. Like, are you the Messiah, or should we wait for another? And Jesus responds and says, the, the, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Like, you know that I'm the one, because I'm doing these type of signs. So yes, there was the element that, Christ was sympathetic towards people who were in need, and so he heals them. But Christ's purpose in ministry was not to come and heal everybody. He doesn't heal everybody. These diseases continued in the lives of others that were in these towns. He healed specific people to validate his office of who he had come to be, who he is revealing himself as. Moses was given these signs to validate that he was from God. Christ gives, gives given these signs, he performs these signs, to show that he's the Messiah. In Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Again, Peter appeals to the fact that Jesus was doing these things to attest that he was from God. Acts 14.3 So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And then in Hebrews 2.3-4 How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing according to his will. The three major times of miracles, Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, it was always meant to attest to these people coming directly from God, being sent by God. We don't have individuals like that today. We don't have apostles. We talked about that earlier. We don't have the need to validate the messenger like we had in the New Testament during this covenant transition. Now, if we want to be open and but cautious, we could say, well, maybe individuals that are going into places that have never heard of Christ, never heard of the gospel, this is so different, so contrary to the religions they've been brought up on, maybe there's the need for the validation of that message. And I, and I might have a point where I'm willing to say, okay, okay, maybe that's when it happens. I don't see the need and the, the, the consistent purpose for it to be happening here in America where people are just supposed to come 
to be healed. Again, Christ was sympathetic towards people who needed healing, but the overall purpose of the healing was not just to fix people. It was to validate him as the messenger of God. So how do, how do, we, how do we respond to these type of things? We should have faith that God can and does heal. I mean, we should definitely not be lacking in faith. It shouldn't be that, that we doubt these things because we believe God can't do them or that he doesn't ever do them. We see even in the book of Acts that these continue. Acts 9.34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. We can have faith that, that God does this. But we also need to realize that the kingdom is not fully here yet, meaning we are still sub- subjected to sickness. Because it's real easy to go down this theology where there should be no sickness in the church. I mean, if we have gift of healing, we ought to be able to get rid of all the sickness in the church. And that's just not the case. We don't see that in any churches in America where everybody's just free of sickness. There's not any churches that you see people just automatically coming to and automatically being healed. Those churches would be packed out constantly. We don't have that type of thing going on. And in the New Testament, we're presented uh, the facts that we shouldn't believe that that should be happening. Galatians 4, 13 through 14. Starting verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul relates the fact that he had some type of bodily ailment. This is the man whose handkerchiefs could be taken to people and they could be healed from it. And yet he's, he's not healing himself. 1 Timothy 5.23 Paul talking to Timothy. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy got sick, potentially off contaminated water. Um, Paul's saying, you know, drink some wine for yourself. You need to get healthy. You've got these ailments that you're dealing with. I mean, if you're Timothy, you're thinking, where's the handkerchief at? Like, send the handkerchief so I can be healed of these ailments. Like, that's, that's, that's what I'd be wanting from Paul, not some advice about drinking a little bit of wine. It's like, where are these magic handkerchiefs that I'm supposed to get that make me better? What we see is that the, the healing seems to decrease the further away we get from the book of Acts. It seems to be decreasing. We see in uh, 2 Timothy 4.20... Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Paul left this man sick in a different city. Couldn't keep up. He had to leave him behind because he was ill. Again, you've got to ask the question, if Paul has the gift of healing, which we've seen already in the book of Acts, why is he not exercising it here? Why is he not healing this guy? What we see in Scripture is that no one beyond Jesus had the power to heal at all times. Jesus is the only one who has the power to heal on command. He's the only one that demonstrates a power to heal consistently across the board. What we see from these other individuals who were healing at times is that they're incapable, or they choose not to at least, to heal in other times. Acts 13, 11. 
And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In Philippians 2.27, This is talking about Epaphroditus. You'll remember Epaphroditus was um, was a, was a brother in Christ to Paul. He says in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul relates the fact that he gets better, but he doesn't attribute it to anything that Paul does to him. He says God had mercy on him. God allowed him to get better even though he had been ill. What we see is healing decreasing by the guys that had the ability to heal, at least in the book of Acts. From the conservative standpoint, and I told you, you know, kind of, kind of described to you what prophecy looks like from the conservative standpoint from Piper and Grudem and some of these other guys. Best I can tell, in churches that believe this continues... And it not being the churches that we see on TV where, you know, people are just coming and being healed of of sickness and disease that, um, you know, modern medicine couldn't take care of. The conservative standpoint on this is that the gift of healing is given to people who pray for healing and their prayers get answered more than others. So Piper and these guys would say there are individuals in your churches that when they pray for people to get healed, the prayers get answered more frequently than other people in the church that pray for healing. Um, I mean, I'm, I definitely believe that people pray and people get healed. I mean, I think we can pray to the, the ultimate healer, and he heals people. I don't know how to to to, to wrap my hands around individuals who their prayers get answered more um that's a difficult one for me to to go along with it that's a gift of healing because the question that i have to kind of ask is is how do we know when somebody's gifted in this area and how do we know when somebody's just simply praying and somebody's being healed Um, but that's kind of the conservative standpoint guys that we would support that say this continues, they say it continues in the form of certain individuals. I mean, it almost comes across like they pray better than others in the church. Like they know how to really get in touch with God and get people healed better than other people in the church. Now, I definitely believe that that there are individuals that you probably want to go and ask them to pray for you because it seems like faithfully they pray and faithfully their prayers are answered. But I don't know that they're gifted so much as they are faithful in the area of prayer. Are they better prayers than other people? I don't know that that's correct to say. I think there's certain individuals that devote themselves to prayer more frequently than others, and it would make sense that their prayers get answered because they're faithfully petitioning God for things. So I don't know that it's it's necessary to say that certain individuals have the gift of healing because their prayers are being answered, I think we'd necessarily look at and say, are these people faithfully praying more than other individuals in the church? Um, What we do see in Scripture is that the purpose is not to advance our fame. People that had this gift, the purpose was not to advance 
their own personal fame. In Acts chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. This is uh, Simon who's trying to purchase these get this, this ability to, to, to do these things. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, Peter says to him, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Here's an individual who wants the ability to do miracles and healings and these sort of things. Uh, and Peter says, your heart's not right. Like, you're wanting to advance yourself to make yourself famous. And that's not the purpose of these gifts, obviously. Um, it's not meant to provide entertainment to the church. Luke 23. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Imagine that. Herod, excited to see Jesus, because he heard he could do signs and miracles, and that was his reason for wanting to see Jesus. Had nothing to do with submission to him as his creator, had nothing to him about had nothing to do with him seeing his need for a savior. He simply wanted Jesus for the entertainment. Herod looking to bring somebody before him that could do things to entertain him. And Jesus condemns this type of mindset in the New Testament. He condemns the mindset of people wanting to be entertained and awed by the ability to do these type of things. I would tend to think that these things don't continue because I can't imagine... A church being mature enough not to come every Sunday for that purpose. You know, we said that these things should not supersede the Word of God. That if these things continue, they should not take precedent over the Word of God. Can you imagine if we had a time in our service where uh, people began to speak in languages and then we had interpretation happen? And then we, we healed people in our church that were sick and then I was supposed to get up and preach a sermon. I mean... Which one do you think people would get more excited about on a week-in, week-out basis? You'd have people coming and saying, hey, i got to leave early, but I definitely want to be there for the stuff that happens at the beginning of the service, because that's the good stuff. Like It's hard for me to imagine a church that could be mature enough to see these things happen regularly and it not supersede God's Word. I mean, when the guy gets up to teach God's Word... That's not near as entertaining as when we start talking in languages and, and when we start healing people. Like, that's when the real good stuff starts to happen. It's not meant for our entertainment. Herod was the guy who wanted Jesus to come. Wasn't interested in hearing him teach. And you see other people that were around Jesus during this time. They weren't interested in the message of Jesus. They just wanted to get to what they considered the good stuff. And that's an incorrect mindset, especially what Paul talks about to Timothy. Be ready to preach the word. Not be ready to do miracles, not ready to heal people. Preach the word. The purpose of the gifts was always to advance the gospel. Acts chapter 5. Verse 14 through 16. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The important part of that passage is verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. The miracles were not entertaining. They were adding believers to the body of Christ. 
in Acts 9, 32 through 35. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, where there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The purpose of the miracles in the book of Acts was always to advance the gospel, to validate the messenger, to validate the message, not to be a... Um, an extensive, long-term, prolonged entertainment. It was meant to advance the gospel. Acts chapter 3, verses 6 through 16. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand, raised him up, Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom he delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. God receives the glory when this was happening. The gospel was being advanced. Now, if the gift of miracles continues in the New Testament where we are at today, how is it happening specifically in Scripture? What was kind of the the method being used? We see the laying on of hands. I'm going to give you three things that we see in Scripture when these things are happening. The laying on of hands. Luke 4.40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Talking about Jesus, he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. There's also the anointing with oil. Mark 6.13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We see this also in James chapter 5, 14 through 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, there's debate about is this talking about spiritual sickness or physical sickness, but what's not debated is the fact that oil was anointed on these individuals that were coming to the elders. So some type of healing's taking place here, and there's anointing with oil that's happening. And then we also see the idea of faith being intertwined in this. James 5.15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This is where we would get the conservative view that the gift of healing is, is, a, um, is demonstrated through prayer. It's the answered prayer that reveals the gift of healing today.
um, the questions that I have in this area is, can we consider it a gift if it's not happening all the time? Can someone truly be gifted with the gift of healing if they're not able to pray for it and have it happen all the time? I told you that it decreases in Scripture. We see Paul uh, and these guys healing, and then we see them talking about people being sick that obviously aren't being healed. But what we don't have is Paul saying, I prayed for this man's healing. I handed him my handkerchief, and the healing didn't happen. So it only happens sometimes. It seems to be when the gift of healing is there, it's happening. And then we could make an argument that the gift of healing is no longer there. And Paul's with the understanding that, hey, this was to validate the message. It was to validate the messenger. That's no longer needed. So now I'm amongst sick people that aren't being healed anymore. I'd have a hard time saying that uh, Miss Carolyn has the gift of healing because one out of six times when she prays, somebody gets healed. The other five times, they don't. But that's better than uh, Dave, who has prayed 12 times for somebody to be healed, and it's never happened. Like, I have a hard time saying, wow, Miss Carolyn has the gift of healing, because one out of six times when she prays, somebody gets healed. Because I don't think anybody claims today in the conservative realm that I can pray and people get healed all the time. I mean, we're always, you always hear people praying that, man, if it's not God's will, like, um, this isn't going to happen. Whereas people were walking by Peter and his shadow was touching them and they were being healed. I have a hard time calling it a gift if it's not happening every time I try to use it. To me, it goes back to, man, that's just answered prayer. And that, that's for anybody in the church. Pray, ask, God tells us to do those things. Expect results, pray in faith, pray according to God's will. I think when Matt Chandler was going through his cancer, I mean, they prayed over him. They anointed him with oil at his church. But I don't know that anybody came and they expected it to happen because somebody had the gift of healing. And, man, this always happens when this person prays. I have a really hard time calling it a gift if it's not something that can happen on command. Because it seems like Peter and Paul, I mean, they were just speaking it. You don't ever have Peter say, get up and walk, and the guy's like, I can't. Peter's like, oh, man, that worked yesterday. Like, when Peter does it, it happens. It's not one out of six times. I mean, it happens. The man had the gift of healing, and it happened. We don't ever see him try to use it, and it doesn't happen. So, yes, I believe we should pray for healing. I believe we can expect God to heal. Is it necessary to call it the gift of healing? I'm not at a point where I feel like we need to call it that. Does the Holy Spirit lead us to say things to certain people that are encouraging? Yes. Are there times when we may not realize it knowing that we're speaking to somebody in a sermon? Yes. Do we have to call it the gift of prophecy? I don't think so. I'm okay with admitting what's happening. I don't know that we have to label it as these things because these things sound extraordinary. Like these things sound really supernaturally special doesn't take away from the fact that if we pray i mean we pray for for adam long to get a job and he gets a job i don't know that we need to identify okay who had the gift here that got that man a job like who worked that miracle through their prayer that adam long who we weren't sure was going to be able to get a job in this in this uh occupation gets a job 
I think we just praise God and say, man, God answers prayer. It's not, wow, who's got that gift? Because we need to start feeding them prayer requests constantly. I just don't see that. I just don't see that we have to label it that way um, to identify some of the stuff that we see in Scripture. Um, last thing I'll say about miracles and healing. Uh, a lack of miracles does not reflect a lack of power by God. So just because we don't see miracles as frequently doesn't mean that God's lost any power. A lack of miracles does not reflect a lack of power by God. To believe in a powerful God does not necessitate that you believe in miracles every time. See, people in the charismatic movement will try to critique us for a lack of faith in the ability of God. Oh, the reason you guys don't believe in miracles is because you don't believe God can do these things anymore. It's not a lack of believing that he can do them anymore. It's more of an understanding that he doesn't do them like this anymore. It was a special time in redemptive history where he was validating a new covenant that was foreign to a lot of these people. And to transition from such an old mindset to a new mindset, he allows these things to happen in these disciples that he leaves behind. It's not as necessary today. And if we're going to be open but cautious, I would say, man, talk to me about these things happening in places where the gospel hasn't reached yet. Don't talk to me about them happening in a place where we've had the gospel, we've got the Bible, we've got commentaries, we've got bookstores, we've got all kinds of ways to know who God is and to grow in our knowledge of him. Don't see these things being as necessary in this context here. Uh, as far as demon casting out of demons goes, this isn't talked about as something being given to the church, really. We see individuals doing it, but we don't have any type of prescription, really, beyond just following the example that this is supposed to happen. Um, it, it, you know, just kind of closing comments on demon casting. One, I'm not sure really how to tell if somebody's possessed by a demon. Um, unless you have a, a crazy situation where somebody begins to speak like the demon begins to speak and it becomes like just really uh, evident that, wow, something's crazy is happening here. Um, I don't know that there's a gifting for this type of thing because I don't think this happens very often. Um, I'm not going to discount it happening. I see it happen in Scripture. Um, but I would say that in that type of setting, in that type of context, that we're praying, that we're proclaiming Christ, we're proclaiming the gospel and trusting that God would work in that person's life to bring salvation. I think it goes back to a decrease in this based on um, what I would understand. Jesus proclaims that Satan is being bound, that this type of thing is not happening as prevalently as we see it in his time frame. Um, I, I hear more stories of this being the case in, in other countries and other settings. Um, I just don't have a lot of data to go off of really know how to speak to this one honestly I, I don't see it being a prominent thing in scripture there's not a go to this passage to know how to cast out a demon kind of thing we see it happening yes um it's definitely far less frequent than i think you know we're not going to encounter this much at all um and again scripture is not real clear on like what this would even look like for us uh, in this church all right last thing tongues and interpretations Tongues and interpretations. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna address some things on this topic because this is the one that's probably the, the the most interesting to us because this is the one we hear about the most. Um, we're gonna look at a few things today, some things that we can garner from Scripture. Then what I would like to do next week, we're doing the 
the fall fellowship, so we won't have our normal meeting time. Um, what I'd like to do the following week is kind of wrap up our teaching on spiritual gifts by looking at what spiritual gifts are going to look like in our church, how we're going to serve and, and use our uniqueness and the abilities that God's given us. And then what I'd like to do is to come back for the remaining weeks in November and work through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, kind of in a verse-by-verse type setting. So instead of addressing tongues and interpretations topically, um, I'd like to go to the passage that speaks to it the most and us kind of work through verse by verse, but we're going to go quick. So I'm anticipating covering like a chapter a week, maybe even a chapter and a half a week, but we're going to look at it systematically um, going verse by verse. So we're not going to just blow over these verses because I know this is a topic that a lot of you've asked me about a lot. And I don't want to just say, okay, here's a few things and avoid it because it's uncomfortable for me to talk about because there's some things that we have to wrestle through. What does this mean? Should this be happening in our church? So we're going to talk about it briefly today, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to go through 12, 13, and 14, verse by verse in 1 Corinthians, to see if we can't come to a resolution about what this means specifically for our church. All right, so tongues and interpretations. Uh, when we're talking about tongues, probably the, the better interpretation from the Greek is the gift of languages. Gift of tongues. I mean, you can't say that without sounding just like creepy cult. I mean, people speaking in tongues, it just sounds odd. The better translation is probably speaking in languages, which sounds far less threatening. Um, and then the debate would be speaking in legitimate foreign languages, and then those potentially speaking in some type of heavenly angelic language. That would be what my friend at Trinity says happens in his life, that that he speaks in some type of heavenly angelic language when he's in his own personal prayer time. Um, now, I, I've, I've also met people who I would almost want to say has the gift of tongues or the gift of languages because of how fast they can learn foreign languages. Now, that's not really, like, that's not what's happening in Scripture, but uh, I definitely feel like some individuals have a unique ability to learn languages really, really fast. They're, they're mission-minded people that are, that are on the mission field going into cultures, and they learn languages really fast. Like, Ryan Tipton goes to Romania. He's there like a year and a half, and, I mean, he's speaking fluent Romanian not long after he's there, I think he's told me before it took like six, maybe eight weeks before he felt just confident going out and having conversations with people. Just kind of picked it up. Didn't take classes, didn't take lessons, was just around people and just start speaking Romanian. He can still speak it today. Like, he just he can just talk in Romanian. He'll call people over in Romania and have conversations with them. Justin McGinn's another guy. Justin McGinn, I don't know how many, you know how many languages he knows now? I mean, it's three or four. I mean, he just picks them up and just knows them and can have conversations with people. Um, now, he took some classes, but not, I mean, he didn't take like Spanish one, Spanish two in high school type stuff to where, well, yeah, you'd expect him to be fluent. I mean, we're talking a couple of weeks and he's speaking languages. He's a mission-minded guy who's living in Italy right now and, and he can speak Italian. I mean, he wants to share the gospel with people and he seems to have some type of unique ability um, that others don't have to learn languages fast. Now, again, I don't think that's what happens at 
uh, in the New Testament that people have the ability to learn languages. But I, I wanted to throw that out there as, as something that I do see as maybe a working of the Holy Spirit in him that he's able to learn languages quickly. And there's others like that that can pick up foreign languages quickly. Um, the book of Acts seems to present the gift as a speaking in foreign languages. And then we see the, the controversial angelic language come out more in 1 Corinthians. So in the book of Acts, it really seems to be the foreign languages, the legitimate languages that are being spoken. Now, uh, Angela was asking me about some of these passages in the book of Acts where it's almost like Pentecost happens again. Like you have individuals who who were supposedly following God, and then they interact with a Peter or a Paul. They get the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in tongues, but supposedly they were already believers. So it's like, why didn't they have the Holy Spirit yet, and why do they just now start speaking in tongues? Why weren't they speaking in tongues at Pentecost when it happened for the disciples? Now, I can't necessarily prove this, uh, but R.C. Sproul was talking about this at the Strange Fire Conference, that... There are four times when we see the Holy Spirit come upon individuals in a Pentecostal-type setting in the book of Acts. Obviously, we have Pentecost. We have Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at these real quick. Acts chapter 8, 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, there's nothing about tongues here, but there's definitely a Pentecostal-type experience where you have believers who now receive the Holy Spirit once um, Peter and John come and speak to them. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44... This is where the tongues start to accompany the Holy Spirit coming. This is Cornelius. This is a, a guy who's labeled a God-fearer, but um, has the vision that he needs to send for Peter. Peter has a similar vision. This is when the, the, the blanket comes down with all the unclean animals. God says, what you thought was unclean is now clean. Peter wakes up the next morning and he's told, like, hey, you're supposed to go, you're supposed to go meet with Cornelius and his family. Peter comes, shares Christ. Um, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's the, the third incident of the Holy Spirit coming. And then in Acts 19, 1-7, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, R.C. Sproul says that the Great Commission is to share the gospel with those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he relates that to what happens in these four incidences. That the, the book of Acts is concerned with the Jews, those in the area who had surrendered to Judaism, but they were, they were Gentiles, and they were not fully accepted because they didn't accept circumcision, which you can understand that a man who hasn't grown up around circumcision wants to become a Judaizer, but says, I'm a little resistant to the idea of the circumcision. I'm not sure if I want to jump all in with that being the case. So you had them that were kind of on the fringe, like we're following God, but not fully like the Jews tell us to. Then you got the Samaritans who are rejected by the Jews, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The Samaritans who have intermarried with other nations, and so they're kind of rejected. They have to worship their own way because they're not really permitted to come to Jerusalem and worship like the others. Uh, the Jewish people used to bypass Samaria. That's why it was so alarming to Peter and these guys when they come back and Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. We have Samaritans who experience this Pentecost, and then we have the Gentiles who experience it. Um, R.C. Sproul's understanding is that we have four distinct type of Pentecost settings that reaches to the ends of the earth. And I was telling Angela last week, she's like, why do these guys who believe not have the Holy Spirit and why do they have to be uh, to be baptized, and why do they have to talk to Paul about this? And I told her, I said, well, for one, these people are saying, we don't know about Jesus. So if they had experienced Pentecost in the same way the disciples, imagine how they would have felt if all of a sudden they're speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit's coming upon them, and nobody's explained to them to be waiting on it. Remember, like, the disciples were waiting in the upper room, and they were said, wait for the Holy Spirit, his power's going to come upon you. Imagine if that had been far-reaching to anybody that was a believer at the time. And all of a sudden, like you're in a setting where you just start speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you didn't even know to be expecting it. So I think there's some grace here that God says, I'm going to wait until somebody communicates the need for the Holy Spirit so that these people aren't completely freaked out by what's happening in their life. In addition, these people don't know about Jesus. So they are believers under the old covenant. They haven't been told about the new covenant yet. They have to have Jesus. It's the same thing for people in Africa right now. It doesn't matter if they're trying to follow God the best they can. They have to know about Jesus, Paul says. Once these people come to an understanding of Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. And I think, it, I think God, we don't understand the racial divide here. I think these people had to see salvation and the Holy Spirit happening the same way it happened to them as Jews for them to authenticate it. Remember, they said in the previous passage, it said that the circumcised Jews that it came with Peter were astonished that this was happening to Gentiles. In order for that racial divide to happen, or to be broken down, it already happened, for it to be broken down, for them to become this outward-focused, passionate about sharing the gospel, they had to believe that Gentiles could be saved. Because these people were dogs to them. They were not part of the covenant people. And I think it's relevant, too, that they were speaking in tongues after Pentecost to validate this gospel message is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles, and it looks the same way in the life of a Gentile. Does that make sense? 
that it's not just unique to Jewish people, that, hey, this is happening for Gentiles. We can't claim superiority as a Jew because we have the oracles of God. We've been in covenant with him for so long. They need to see something unique happen in the Gentiles as well. I think it's important to see that. Why are they speaking in tongues? I think the Jewish people need to see that salvation happens the same way for a Jew and a Gentile. So thinking in that context, uh, it helps us to maybe understand why we see tongues speaking in the book of Acts. It's also important to note that there's no evidence that these people continued to speak in tongues. There's no evidence that these people continued. There's no evidence that this was a gift given to them that was to continue in the future. It makes more contextual sense to see it as an occurrence that happens here that probably didn't continue. Then we come to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Is there a version involving an unknown heavenly language? There's abuse that's happening in 1 Corinthians. That, that is clear. There is some type of abuse that's happening. And Paul writes to correct it. Now, I've read through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and I haven't done it yet with commentaries because I want to kind of get my own impression from this because I've never really studied this in depth like we're doing now. I want to get kind of my own first impressions about it before we go through it verse by verse and begin to look at it in depth. Some of the first impressions that I get, and sometimes I share these with you when we're going through verse by verse, some initial things that come out to me before I really start looking at what other guys have to say about this is that Paul seems to downplay the importance of tongues. In 12, 13, and 14, the goal is not to come out of it, let's start speaking in tongues, everybody. He starts to downplay it. It's excessive in this church. And it's almost as though he's wanting to move them away from it, move away from the excess of tongues here. He does give guidelines for when and how to do it. But even more so, he downplays it happening on an individual basis. So some of us know people who, who talk about like an, a private prayer language. Paul seems to really try to draw people away from that type of mindset. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, and we're just going to look at a couple of things real quick. And like I said, I promise you we're going to go through this verse by verse. One, I think it's important in 12.1, he says... Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. It's the same type of language he uses about the second coming. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's purpose in 12, 13, and 14 is to give solid information about this topic to the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Here's how we'll do it. I'm going to give you four things that, that is evident from this passage. We're going to read through this passage, kind of make a couple of comments, and then that's going to kind of set the stage for us in a couple of weeks when we come back to it and go through it verse by verse. Number one, what we see in this chapter is that the gift is to be used to edify. The purpose of the gift is to edify. Secondly, in the corporate setting, Paul says no more than two to three in a single meeting. No more than two to three people should be speaking in tongues in a single church gathering. Now, that's real inconsistent with what we see in the charismatic churches today. You see tons of people just, just praying and singing and, and talking in tongues, and it's a whole lot more than two or three. 
even at, at Trinity, where, where I was talking with the youth pastor, he says, yeah, it's not uncommon for people in our church to just be talking and speaking and, and praying in tongues in a service. I said, well, was it interpreted? And he says, no, 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 no. Like, that's just individual stuff that's happening. What we see here from Paul is that when it's happening with other people around, two to three people max, and then number three, it must have an interpreter. It must have an interpreter because it goes back to the purpose of edification. Paul says, if we can't understand you, we can't be edified by you. If you're talking in a way that nobody, including you, knows what you're saying, how does anybody leave encouraged by that? He says there has to be an interpreter. And then fourthly, it must be done orderly and not out of control. It must be done orderly, not out of control. All right, 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, from what I understand in the Greek, this could really be translated, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to a God. Now, that's important because what we're going to see in the historical context is that this type of activity was definitely happening in the false religions in Corinth. Religions that these people were being saved out of. So the conservative cessationist viewpoint is Paul's being sarcastic in most of chapter 14. That he's identifying something that has no place in the church, that has been brought into the church from a foreign religion. And, and he's sarcastically saying when you speak in a tongue that, that uh, speaks not to men, or for one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to a God, for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. It's basically, you're just talking gibberish to a God that doesn't exist, is what some people would say about this passage. Now, we're going to look at that more when we get to this chapter, but I wanted you to see that, that, it's, that, that it's possible that a lot of what's even being discussed here is not corrective in the sense that it's okay to do this that he's trying to weed it out completely from this church. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So he's really downplaying tongues here and really emphasizing speaking in languages that we can understand. That's how people get edified. Not when you come in and talk in languages that nobody understands. It's when we can understand what you're saying. That builds up the church. He says the only way tongues can build up the church really is if there's an interpreter who tells us what you're saying. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? He says, if the bugle's not playing properly in a way that we can understand it, then it doesn't alarm people to battle. It doesn't call people to battle like it's supposed to. Verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. 
But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. See, I even feel like Paul's downplaying here this this private prayer language. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. He's saying, I'm praying, but I have no idea what I'm praying. My, my, My mind doesn't even know what's going on. He says, instead, I'll pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Again, he seems to be emphasizing uh, understandable worship, understandable prayer. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Or you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, downplaying the importance of tongues, emphasizing the importance of understandable language. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And the law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners while I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And in each, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now you see some order there that you don't see a lot of times in charismatic churches. Two to three, um, it's in order. There needs to be an understanding if an interpreter is present. And that's one thing that I have a hard time, me and Tyson have talked about this some If I was compelled to speak in tongues, I'm told here to make sure that there's an interpreter. There has to be an interpreter before I open my mouth, which to me means I ought to be able to look into the congregation and say, oh, so-and-so's here. They're an interpreter. But like I asked the guy at Trinity, I said, do y'all have designated interpreters so that somebody knows if an interpreter is present? He says, no, like it's somebody different like every time. People just stand up and interpret what the person said in their tongue. Which to me makes it difficult, like I could potentially be at fault here if I stand up and speak in a tongue, assuming, well, somebody will interpret this, and then nothing happens. It's like, oh, man, I should have kept quiet, like there's apparently not an interpreter here. But if there's designated interpreters, then I can say, oh, so-and-so's here, he's, he's an interpreter. I can speak this, trusting that this is from the Holy Spirit, and Mr. Interpreter will interpret it for us. 
But I've yet to encounter a situation where interpreters are labeled in the church. It just kind of happens spontaneously. Somebody will just stand up and say, so-and-so was saying this. And that makes it hard to follow through here because it seems like I'm supposed to know if somebody can interpret this or not. Then it says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now that's got implications for how do the women fit into this if it is happening. You know, I think, Denise, you shared the situation where, you know, it was a beautiful situation, but it was a woman speaking in it. It's possible that that completely contradicts what should have been happening. And we're going to wrestle through, like, what does it mean for the woman to be silent here? But there's at least some instruction that a woman has a, a role to play and a role not to play in this type of setting. And, and, and I don't know that you see that in typical charismatic churches where, where women are given clear instruction about how they play out in this. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came, or, you, or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Man, I want us to, I want us to understand this. Because we all shared, like, We've been in settings where we think maybe it's happening right. We've been in settings where we think, oh, it's definitely not happening right. I want us as a church to be confident what this is saying and how to recognize when it's right, when it's wrong, if it should be happening, if it shouldn't be happening. Because I think most of us would admit a level of ignorance in this. I'm, I'm first at saying that. Like This is an area where I still have a lot of studying to do, and I'm excited about going through this and, and reaching a point where I'm comfortable with explaining 12, 13, and 14. Um, so, so I encourage you to stay with me as we continue to talk about this. The next time we meet, we're going to talk more practical, less controversial. Here's what we need to be doing with our gifts in this church. Then we're going to come back to 12, 13, and 14 and try to understand what Paul's portraying to this church. I want to leave you with this one quote, and we'll be done. This is actually from John MacArthur at this conference recently. He says, show me a person obsessed with the Holy Spirit, and I'll show you a person not filled by the Spirit. Show me a person obsessed with Jesus Christ, and I'll show you a Spirit-filled person. We kind of hit on that very early on. We said, when the Holy Spirit becomes the focus in church, then we're off track. And that's what happens a lot of times in charismatic churches. The Holy Spirit becomes the focal point. Look what the Holy Spirit's doing amongst us. We said the Holy Spirit came to point people to Jesus. So the only time we should feel comfortable about these type of gifts being used, it's in the context of churches that are all about Jesus. All about Jesus, not about the Holy Spirit. That doesn't downplay the importance of the Holy Spirit, doesn't downplay who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God. But we're told in Scripture the Holy Spirit has come to make much of Christ, not much of himself. So we should be very cautious and careful with individuals and churches that seem to talk more about the Holy Spirit than about Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.